0: Well, uh, in a moment we're going to be in John chapter eight, and so if you want to, if you want to take a moment to find John chapter eight, uh, my family we we did some traveling over the New Year's holidays, and uh, as as traveling tends to be, if you have to deal with airports there's some layovers and some things, and I, I don't know where where my people are in this room, but I am a certain kind of person. Uh, I am a I am a people watching person. Uh, I don't really need to have a TV show. I don't need a book. If if you put me in a crowded space, a public space, I get all the enjoyment and entertainment I need just from watching you people. anybody else where're my people watchers in here? You are weird, okay a bunch of creepos uh, it, when, when you 're in an airport you can you can you don 't have a lot of time to know somebody, but you get to really know somebody you know like you get to know parts of them anyway the the airport version of someone which if we had to be honest, can we just agree that the airport version of us is not our best version of us is that are we like that's just universal right? And so we, we just had some layovers, a couple hours here, a couple of hours there. I think at one point we had like an eight-hour thing in DFW, and uh, just people watching was was great. I just If I could, I want to share a few of the stories that I come to learn uh, during my travels of people watching. Um, we, we ran into this little lady that had this like little chihuahua-looking dog that she assured me was not a chihuahua. I'm pretty sure her eyes need to be checked because that thing looked like a chihuahua. Uh, but just in the airport, I, I don't know if you know this it's cool to take a dog on an airplane with you now. I, I didn't know that was possible. I think you have to buy the dog a ticket, uh, which I would never buy one of my dogs a ticket, but that's neither here nor there. This lady was cool. Uh, my kids were anxious and high energy. They've been kind of bundled up for a while. And so my youngest, Max, he's, he's talkative. He's, he's going to run for mayor, maybe president one day. Um, uh, that, just an aside, we stopped by the White House, which if you hear Max tell the story, that's the mayor's house. And so if Max tells you that he went to the the mayor's house. It was the president's White House. We, we saw that on our travel. But he goes, he sees a lady with a dog. He's like, I don't know you. No stranger danger here. And they just strike up a conversation. She was the sweetest, coolest, most patient lady ever. Max is a thousand miles an hour asking every question about the dog and what she does for a living and who her dad is and just everything you can think of. Uh, and she just talked to him like a human, which is rare, unfortunately, that adults will talk to children as humans. It was cool. I, I really, like her. Uh, we had an exciting moment. Uh, at one point we're sitting at the gate and we're waiting and uh, all of a sudden there's this rush of security people behind us and we're watching. What has happened is somebody decided to um, uh, uh, steal, uh, is that the right word? And I'm sure there's a better word from this, to unnecessarily reappropriate um, some Beats by Dre headphones. Uh, that doesn't do anything for me, but apparently this is a big deal. And so he didn't have just one box of these headphones. He had two boxes of these headphones that he just swiped from one of the stores. Uh, airports are like malls now. They have stores everywhere. And so he had swiped these these headphones, and he got caught, and he's running from the people. He runs into the restroom, and I'm like, y'all, this is better than Jerry Springer. I'm, I'm sitting there. I'm ordering popcorn. I'm just watching the bathroom door. Like, it is I, I, zero cooth from me. I, I am staring this thing down. And it lasted for an hour. This guy just hold himself up in the bathroom. The police show up. It's just the most entertaining stop that we had. And eventually, you know, the police escort him out with the boxes of headphones. In him. And just to say a little thing about intelligence, if you're going to commit grand larceny, maybe do it before they have a copy of your driver's license, you know, on file. He is on the wrong side of security to be stealing things, but he he did Anyway. Um, the last, the last story I'll tell you is about a guy named Frank. Now, Frank, he wasn't there, um, but his wife was. And I just want you to know, Frank's wife tells Frank's business everywhere she goes. Um, she sat behind me at one point in the airport, uh, and she's talking on the phone and she's like, Hey, yeah, this is whatever her name was. Uh, yeah. Did you hear about, did you hear about Frank's brother? No, no, no. Well, what had happened was that Frank's dad way back in the sixties had a child out, you know, not with his wife and they just found out about it. But Frank is really upset and doesn't want anybody to know about this. And so don't tell anybody, be sure you don't tell anybody. Okay. Yeah. I'll talk to you later. Click. Hey, did you hear about Frank? And like, she just went through her whole Rolodex the entire time, telling all of Frank's business. Because poor Frank—I mean, he didn't do anything. It was Frank's dad, I guess, that did something. Um, and yet, and yet, she just shared it all. It's funny because when we when we have bad versions of ourselves, or where there's a story, like we we tend to lean into them. It's a little juicy, right? Oh man, she was all over Frank's story and. She shares it. She shares the worst version of something that she just heard. Um, What if you and I uh, are universally known by the worst version of ourselves? What if your business, like Frank's business, is completely aired out for everybody? How much work do you and I put into something where we're not proud of the thing, whatever the thing is, and we just don't want people to know? What if we were judged by the worst mistake we ever made? What would it be like if Jesus was face to face with us with the worst mistake we ever made? Would he tell our business? Would he, would he protect us? Would he judge us? We're going to read a story in a moment. It's in John chapter 8, where a woman has made a mistake, but instead of it being a secret mistake that she quietly regrets, it's immediately brought to a public venue, and she is required to answer for it. And in this public venue is Jesus Christ himself. What is Jesus's response to your worst mistake? And you may find that it's different than the churchy answer It's different than maybe what you have been taught about jesus i think I think many people in our community are taught that we need to hide our worst mistakes from jesus but what if what if it was fully known and still fully forgiven? we're going to look at John chapter eight together. I would invite you to turn to that um before I get into the text, I would like to take just five minutes to explain something weird about this text, because j- the story of John chapter 8, uh, is, is strange. And in most English Bibles, if you have a physical Bible in front of you and some of your app Bibles, there are some special notes around John chapter 8. In my Bible, uh, it has the phrase in big, like, parentheses. It says, the, the earliest manuscripts do not include, and it has the chapters and the verses. If you have a Bible in front of you, do you have a weird note around John Chapter 8. Anybody in here? Do you see it? Yeah? A few of you? Yeah. So here's what I want to do. I want to take, because, you know, just, just pastor had on. I want, I want you to know how the Bible came to us and why those notes are in here, because some people, uh, they would say things like, well, you can't trust the Bible. And then they may point to a story like this as an example of why the Bible isn't trustworthy. And I kind of have the opposite perspective on this. Uh, and let me just explain what's happened. The, the notes say that our earliest manuscripts don't include this passage right here. The story is called, uh, we call it the woman caught in adultery. And what's happened here, the problem with, uh, that they're trying to communicate here is that uh, the way we received our Bible, we're kind of going in two directions at the same time. On the one hand, the Bible is moving forward in time from the time that it was written to our time today. The copy that you have right now isn't the it, 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 the copy they had wasn't written in English, and so it's been translated. It's been passed on through the generations to this point. And so the the people who were doing that, they 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 did a a hard job of translating it to different languages and making sure that uh, we have a copy of the scriptures at the same time, We have gone backwards in time through archaeology and humanities to look at old manuscripts. And so we have we have uh, our studies are going in two different directions. We're bringing the Bible forward and Lord willing, the Bible will make it into the next generation, the next generation. But also our archaeologists are going backwards and they're wanting to look at it. And people who study the old version of the Bible and our current copies, the, the name of that study is biblical textual criticism. Okay, and so all you nerds in here, You're like, yes, I would love to hear more about biblical textual criticism. I've got three more minutes of it here. There there are entire books you can Google, you can go look them up. It is a study worth having if you want to have it. It is dry, but it is powerful. What they're doing is they're looking at these old copies, like from the second century, third century of the Bible, and they're looking at the Bible that you and I hold in our hands, and they're saying, "How, how close do these match up? And it's amazing that these are almost word for word, exactly the same with the small textual variations They're very, very small. And every time there's a variation, modern Bibles will mark in the bottom, this is where the variation is. Usually, uh, that variation is, instead of saying the word he, it puts the person's name. For example, in John chapter 8, verse 16, if you have your physical Bible, we're not gonna put it up here, there's gonna be a little note, and a little note under it, and it says, some manuscripts change the word father to he. It is not a substantial difference. It's just how they were writing it. They wrote he instead of father and throughout the course of the Bible those little notes are there and it's always these little phrases here and there the one big exception to that is this story we're going to look at today. It is a large text. It's about 11 verses long, 11 or 12 verses long. Um, and there's a note that says, hey, in some manuscripts, it's in a different place in the Bible. Um, in some manuscripts, it's later in John. Uh, in some manuscripts, it's actually in a different book of the Bible. This story is in the book of Luke. And they, they look through these studies a little Explanation of that, for those of you who are really interested, is that in, um, uh, the, the early church, it shows up in the, the Western church's copy of the scriptures, uh, really early, like second century. Um, in the Eastern church, it's absent from their scriptures until about a thousand years in. And so somewhere along the way, um, John or somebody else kind of added a chapter, added a story. From where I sit, this is no different than someone putting out a second edition. After a story goes out, there. they're just like, oh, and I want to add this to it as well. But evidence is, is that it's extremely old. If you want more about a lecture, this sermon is not going to be a lecture about textual criticism. If you want more about that, pull me off to the side. I'll give you some books. Uh, it's worth a study. But let me tell you where I land on this. The first is this. The Bible you hold in your hand is extremely, extremely credible. Those who say, like, the Bible has an ulterior motive really have a hard time explaining why the, all those little footnotes are in there, saying, well, this is what we see in the manuscript. It's not trying to hide anything. It's trying to explain this is how we received our Bible. There, there are no real motivations, and anybody who says that just hasn't opened a Bible recently. Um, the, those notes are in your Bible wanting you to know that these the story uh, is is uh, a part of that tradition. Second, uh, it appears to me that the story wasn't written by John, but was probably included by John or one of his disciples as a second edition. You can also see at the end of John, there's like two V VNs. Uh, it's like there's a story, uh, you can look at this later, the very last chapter. It ends, it's like this really clean ending, and then it picks back up and then it has another clean ending. It looks to me that John, as the Bible was being passed from church to church, he would add a few things. It may have been written, this passage we're, we're reading today may have been written by Luke instead uh, because of some of the vocabulary and how it matches with Luke. But uh, as far as I'm concerned, it is a valid story based on uh, historical evidence and how old we have it. The third is this, and this is the last thing I want to say about it, is um, as far as the story is concerned, there is nothing that we're going to pull out of the story that theologically can't be put somewhere else. You, you can learn. Everything we're going to learn about Jesus today, you can learn somewhere else. It's not like we're building some kind of weird theology off of John chapter 8. So what we're going to do, uh, if now that we've you know explained that elephant in the room for those notes that are there, um, is that we're going to dive into the story, and we are going to try to catch a glimpse of what Jesus is like when he catches us in the worst version of us. What does it look like if the worst version of you is brought to Jesus, and everything you wish nobody knew about you was very obvious to everybody else around you? So uh, if you have your Bible, we're in John chapter 8, and uh, we're going to start in verse 2 together. It says, early in the morning, uh, he came again, that is Jesus, he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and they sat down and taught them. He sat down and, and taught them. This is a very common Jesus moment. He's, he's back in Jerusalem, he's in the temple. As he gets there, crowd's like, yay, Jesus, let's listen to more of what he has to say. Verse 3, the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Now, this is just a messed up story from the very beginning. Can we agree? There's something fishy that, like anybody who reads this, is like, there's something not right about that. Um, Jesus is in his normal place, doing his normal thing with the crowd that he normally has around him. And they have caught a woman in the act of adultery and they're going to make a spectacle out of her. They, they bring this woman, uh, from, from whatever they've caught her doing to in front of Jesus, but not just a private, they could have, they could have said, excuse me, Jesus, can we have a word? We have a question. And they privately discuss it over here with whatever she's dealing with and say, let's get a, Let's get a feel for you, but they wanted to test Jesus. They bring her problems in front of not just Jesus, but the crowd. You're the crowd. What would it be like if I just like pointed at someone and be like, let me tell you the scariest thing, the meanest thing, the saddest story that they've gone through in the last six months and just like made a spectacle of them? These men, they didn't care anything about her. These men didn't care about what heartbreak she was going through. They didn't care about how to restore her. I would even argue that these men didn't even care about justice in this moment. As far as they're concerned, this woman is only a tool to be used to trip Jesus up. They've completely objectified this woman um, as a tool, as a means to their own ends. You know, sometimes we fall into this mistake, this gap, Where we see a person and all we see in that person is their deepest mistake. We see the most recent mistake or we see a sin that just has kind of, kind of pursued them along the way. And in so doing, we make the same mistake that they made, that we completely objectify that person and remove from them the humanity that is theirs. Let me ask a couple of questions about this. Um, I think, I think we all know it takes two to tango, but they only brought one. Uh, where's, where's this guy? Where's, where's the person that she was with? Because the law that they're referencing is that, hey, there has to be, there has to be some judgment here for, for all parties involved. Why, why is he not there? I wonder, uh, I wonder if this is a setup. I wonder if this is, uh, like a good old boy system. Like, hey, we're going to apply justice to just some and maybe like forgive the others. There's definitely something that's unfair right here. How often do we fall into this trap of reducing someone to just their action, forgetting that they are an image bearer of God? When we view a person as only the problem, um, we're guilty of dehumanizing them and removing that image from them, the dignity that that image has. Let me say it another way people are precious, people are sacred. And you haven't met a person that isn't precious or sacred. Even even Susie in HR (laughs) that you don't you know you're having problems with. Like when we remove from them that dignity, we can objectify them. Then they are only the problem instead of the human that they are. Okay, so this woman unprotected in every way nobody's there for her but they bring her to jesus and they demand he answer them what what does jesus 's response to someone who is actually guilty at all appearances that she is guilty it's just she 's not the only one who's guilty what, is, what does jesus do when someone actually does something wrong this is an important theological piece to to land on uh, early in in our talk today because if if we're not careful, we dismiss people uh, who are in their worst version, but does Jesus do that? Are we acting like Jesus in that moment? Okay, so what does Jesus do? At the end of uh, verse 6, it says that Jesus bent down, and he wrote with his finger on the ground. Verse 7, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. What a, what a weird moment. There's all this energy. There's this hype. There's, it's loud. There's this woman who may just be like wrapped in a blanket at this moment. And, and in all of this energy, Jesus, what are you going to do? And he pauses. Feel how long that pause was just now. He slow rolls it. He stoops down. He doesn't say a word. He writes on the ground. Who knows what he writes? There's a lot of speculation about that. But he writes on the ground, and then he just looks up, and he says, Okay, well, let he who is without sin... Cast the first stone. Whoever wants to start, you guys can, you can start this. And then he stoops back down and he writes on it. This is a, a powerful kind of a way to change the pressure in the room. Now, on the one hand, uh, who in this room at this moment is without sin? Well, there's only one person uh, in this overall sense that is without sin. That's the sinless, blameless Jesus. Um, and that's, that's one way to read this. But on the other hand, Jesus is being challenged with a legal question, and he's making a legal response. Who here is not guilty in some way of what just happened? Go ahead and throw the first stone. I think he's highlighting to them that you guys have set her up. You guys have created a scenario that has, has roped her into this. Where's the man? Um, the the law that they're referencing requires that the man be brought to them. It requires that the witnesses have seen this, not suspected it, not hinted at it, but they have seen it, and it requires that two of them have seen uh, the crime. And it requires the law that they're referencing requires that if any man sees someone about to commit a sin, that they speak up to protect them. And he's saying to them, like, which which one of you spoke up? Which one of you tried to stop this woman from going into the situation before it happened? Which, which one of you didn't just sit back and wait for the opportunity to use her to further your agenda? They were using this woman's misfortune mistake for their own agenda because to them she was completely disposable. The way this world works, outside of the, a community of faith, when you go out there, you are only as strong as your weakest link. That's how the world works. The world looks for our weakest link, and then it highlights it. But that's not how the gospel works. The gospel says that despite our weakest link, which we all have one, we can be forgiven. Despite our weakest link, we can be healed and made whole. Is Jesus going to demonstrate that, or is he going to demonstrate the way that the world works? She is absolutely vulnerable, and she's made an absolute spectacle for the benefit of others. I wonder if anybody in here has kind of felt that way. Maybe not her exact story, but you feel like you've been, you've been wrung out to dry. Something happened and people have blown this way out of proportion, told more people than they should know. And you have to live with, it. I wonder if anybody in here feels like Frank right now. This poor guy. His wife is telling his business all over the nation in airports across the land. And he's just, you know, I wish, I wish people didn't, didn't do that. But it's not that she's innocent, right? It's not like there's a misunderstanding. She's she's actually guilty. So what does Jesus do with someone who's actually guilty, um, but vulnerable and hurting? Verse 9 says, But when they heard it, they went away one by one. What did they hear? Well, Jesus had just said to them, Well, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. It's a funny thing that the author here makes an emphasis that it begins with the older ones. I think age, uh, it, it has a lot of effects on us. Uh, I've been feeling the effects of age in my ankle and my receding hairline. I saw a picture of myself the other day. You guys didn't tell me I'm bald on the back of my head. Like I, I didn't know that until I see some pictures back there. Uh, age has a funny way of changing us over the years. I think, I think one of the ways that it changes us uh, is if we're honest. Uh, we grow in empathy a little bit. If we're honest, we remember that we were broken at one point, and we know what it feels like to be broken. I don't think it's an accident that the older ones left first. Um, Because they see this young girl who has nobody to protect them. I, I would hope that some of those older ones started thinking about what their daughter would be like. I wish somebody would protect my daughter in that moment. And so the oldest one leaves first. When that oldest one leaves, then the the next few that are younger is like, yeah, yeah, we we're we're messing up. We we have no business here. And then then they then they leave, and one by one they all, even the youngest, most proud, and like I'm going to take it. And when you're the last one standing, you're not as strong anymore. Even even when we're wrong. Um, People are looking up to us. If you're, if you're of a generation that's older and you got people looking up to you, just know. They'll look up to your humility. They'll also look up to your pride, and they tend to follow you in both directions. That seems to be what's happened here. Unfortunately, though, I think we are in a current generation, like in 2020-whatever-we're-in-for now. Um, I don't even know if the oldest ones would leave first. I think, I think sometimes we're so proud and we're so sure of our own rightness as Americans or as individuals that we might even stay in this crowd and try to correct Jesus on being wrong in the moment. How how far some of us have have fallen just as a a culture. So they leave one by one until only one person is left, and that's Jesus. If you find yourself in the most broken position you've ever been, guilty, red-handed, completely unprotected, there are worse places in this world than to be alone at the feet of Jesus. If I can encourage you with anything, uh, getting to Jesus is is maybe, not maybe, it is the best thing um, you can do. If you are vulnerable, if you are hurting and there's nobody left to protect you, uh, I believe Jesus is the kind that would. Here's what Jesus does in verse 10. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? That's a funny thing. Uh, we've lost that as a culture. It was polite back then for Jesus to address her as a woman. Can I just give you, uh, young people, just a little advice? You see a woman, don't begin like, woman, you know, don't do not do that. Uh, but it, it was a term of endearment. Jesus, in fact, he even calls his at one moment, his mom is talking to him. And he, he, he says, woman, you know, my time has not come. It just sounds weird to American ears. It was polite then. He says to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And we get her first word. She said nothing. She's had no chance to defend herself. She, she's completely vulnerable. And she looks up and she says in verse 11, no one, Lord. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. What a, what a wonderful story. I'm not going to condemn you. Jesus says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone, and the only one left standing after saying that is Jesus. And the one who is without sin, who has the right to condemn, chooses not to. This reiterates something that John has been highlighting this entire time, is that Jesus holds himself out as the one sent from the Father with the authority to judge the affairs of men and chooses not to, chooses to forgive instead. And this woman, it's not that she was innocent and there was a misunderstanding. She was guilty. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Notice what Jesus didn't say. Hey, girl, it's okay. You're just doing your best. Go on, get out of here. Follow your heart, kid. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, listen, hey, all those old rules in the Bible, they were for a different time. We're not doing that anymore. Just get out of here, you old rapscallion. Uh, He meets her where she's at and says, I'm not going to condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus, honestly, is walking this perfect balance between grace and truth. The truth is, is that you sinned. The grace is, is I'm not going to condemn you for it. Go and sin no more. She got a second chance at life. They wanted to kill her over this. To make a point, they wanted to kill her. They have objectified her to the point that her death was inconsequential to them getting Jesus tripped up. And Jesus with a perfect balance of grace and truth, demonstrates how to navigate that. The truth is is that she's guilty, and the grace is that the one that is qualified to judge her chooses to forgive instead. She has freedom to go and sin no more, and she can belong because Jesus was left alone with her, and she can belong to him. Let me ask you a question, church. Does your Christianity equip you to stay with others in their brokenness? Or has it equipped you to dismiss the people that have failed the test? Jesus stayed with those in their brokenness. That's the Christianity that we're supposed to have. Does your Christianity equip you to balance grace and truth? Or have you chosen one or the other? You just forgive all willy-nilly, uh, or you hold to the truth so sternly that there's nobody left standing at the end. Jesus balanced grace and truth. Does your Christianity teach you and train you to balance grace and truth? Does your Christianity help you restore others? Or has it helped you condemn others? This story is beautiful. Um, I'm glad that we have it uh, in our text. People, all people, are made in the image of God. And I don't know if you know this, but that makes all people precious and valuable and irrepeatable. There will never be another like you, and there will never be another like them. People are made in the image of God. And Jesus sees that in her. We should act like Jesus. We should treat people with the preciousness that they have. We should treasure, protect, and point people to real hope. And if anything in our faith or the structures of our faith are helping us dismiss and disqualify people, that is not the Christianity that Jesus has taught us to follow. We, as Christians and followers of Jesus, should look like the one that we're following who sits with this woman in her brokenness, who restores her, chooses not to condemn her, though he has the right to, and teaches her how to have life and peace and hope. We're going to continue our series in John. This is uh, We, we kind of drop it and pick it up from time to time. I, I was looking at it. This is week 17 of John, and we're almost like halfway. So uh, who, who, who knows how, how many weeks it will be in total. But we're going to spend the next four, five, six weeks looking at John specifically, the gospel of John, because we want to get a really good look at this Jesus, this Jesus who knows what an image bearer of God should be treated like and knows how to balance grace and truth. May we, those of us who follow Jesus, look more like this Jesus and less like the stereotype that people think of when they think of Christians. Let me pray for us, Uh, and then we're going to watch the queue together, some announcements together. Father, Um we uh we, we come to you, Lord, um we, we ask for your forgiveness um for when we when we're so quick to dismiss people and objectify people. May we may we have more grace than that. Teach us your ways. Help us to be more like Jesus, who can who can thread that needle and uh can walk between the two. May we may we be people who restore each other. May we be people who reach out to each other and value the humanity that is in the others around us. Uh, Father, may we be more discipled by Jesus than we are the world and uh, not dismiss people, not objectify people. We pray, Lord, that we would look like Jesus. Um, Lord, I pray that you bless these men and women. um, And we love you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.